From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Your long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Great to be with you, and thanks for your fine company. Ian Robertson is here, twisting the knobs and dials on the other side of the glass, through the glass darkly. And uh, we also have Albert Vinzel, our shy, mysterious story producer who's running our HOA, and that is a live stream on YouTube. You can join the HOA. Just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. Click on the HOA link at the top of the feed, and uh, you're in. You're watching a radio program. How cool is that? Hey, a special hello to all of you joining us on the uh, the HOA, and also listening in uh, to the podcast at iTunes and TuneIn.com and Stitcher Radio and TalkZone.com. Those catching the uh, the Conspiracy Show on one of our affiliates. And uh, let's not forget the Conspiracy Show app. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our resident paranormal investigator, is standing by, and uh, we shall uh, delve into our our monthly tradition, a paranormal news roundup, in just a few moments, and then we'll get into a discussion we began last week with author-filmmaker Paul Davids uh, involving the late science fiction writer, literary agent, and editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, the brilliant, the eccentric Forrest J. Ackerman, Paul Davids and Aki were were dear friends, and, um, and Ackerman... Uh, as I mentioned, who was, he was an avowed atheist and uh, swore that if there was, in fact, an afterlife, it almost sounds like the arrangement Harry Houdini had with his wife. Uh, but Ackerman said that if there was an afterlife, he'd try to reach out to somebody, and that somebody, apparently, is Paul Davids. And he and um, uh, he's the co-author, along with Gary Schwartz, of uh, An Atheist in Heaven, which details all of this compelling evidence for after-death communication. And it turns out, I discovered in that conversation with Paul last week, that uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley was involved in the uh, the Forey Ackerman investigation. So we'll talk about that as well. And uh, I'm, I'm going to retell my story uh, that came to me from uh, the Mighty Aphrodite on, um, earlier in the week. This panicked phone call I got from her and uh, a case of a disappearing and reappearing cell phone. Uh, and this happened... The, the morning after my conversation about Forrest Ackerman. And, um, anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's all about reappearing or disappearing and reappearing objects. Maybe we can talk about that as well. All right. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is uh, with us. She is, uh, a resident paranormal investigator, researcher. She joins us once a month. Uh, she's back with us for the full hour. She is the author of, uh, well, I think it's around 60-plus books now. She's just writing nonstop. She's probably writing another one as we speak, no doubt. And uh, it's always great to have Rosemary Ellen Guiley back on the program. Rosemary, how are you? Hi, Richard. It's always a pleasure to be on. And, uh, yes, you are absolutely right. I am working on a book. Um, and I'm here in California. Uh, my husband and I have been out here for a couple of weeks now. We've got... One more week to go, um, have a, a variety of projects going on out here. But I have been working on the finishing touches of the Zozo phenomenon, which is uh, about a very malevolent entity that likes to attack people who use talking boards or Ouija boards. I and rem- that will be out this summer. Zozo, yes. I remember that uh, the conversation. In fact, when we, we did a TV show on uh, uh, Ouija boards or talking boards, you and I met up in New York, and you told me uh, about Zozo. This was a, uh, a spirit that came to you through the board a number of times. Is that right? 
as well? Yes. Didn't you contact uh, you as well? Encounters, uh, I certainly have had encounters with Zozo, and Zozo also speaks across other communication devices. I've had Zozo show up on uh, ghost box devices, you know, Frank's box, radio sweep communication devices. People have even encountered Zozo doing automatic writing. But uh, whoever or whatever this entity is, it seems to prefer, prefer Ouija boards. And uh, so I teamed up with Darren Evans, who uh, has been quite an experiencer uh, of Zozo, had some horrific experiences and that propelled him into an intensive investigation, trying to find out uh, what was going on with this entity. What kind of experiences? And this is a malevolent entity. What kind of experiences uh, did, did your co-author have with him? With, or I'm assuming it's a him. It's not necessarily a him. Yes, Darren, uh, and he lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Just a regular guy, was not a paranormal investigator. Right. I meant Zozo. Um, is I, I said Zozo's a him, but I don't know that that's, oh. <laughs> in fact, the, the deal. Is Zozo, um, do we know the gender? Does he have a gender? Does it have a gender? Most people refer to Zozo as a him. I okay. think that's uh, kind of a, a habit we have with um, spirits in general. Okay. But some people feel intuitively that the entity is female, hmm. and uh, so we've, we've fallen back on the neutral it. All right, and and uh, um, so back to the um, my question about the experiences that Darren has had with Zozo. These are these have been unpleasant to say the least. Yes, he went through a progressive deterioration that uh, we see in in the paranormal in spirit attachment, and I think that's what happened in his case. That this uh, Zozo entity was able to attach to him, and uh, it it starts with a. a compulsion and an obsession with the board that that, uh, the person has to use it more and more can't stay away from it starts giving authority over to the entity uh, control over to the entity and uh, so Zozo started um, sort of taking over his life and uh, being kind of nice at first and then making dire predictions uh, which spookily came true in a couple of cases involving untimely deaths of people that were friends of uh, Darren's. And uh, he suffered a co- uh, eventually suffered a complete mental breakdown and um, uh, had to, um, uh, you know, stop work, and he underwent uh, literally some exorcisms. Uh, and... Um, when he got himself back together then, he started pursuing this research and found that there were other people all over the planet who'd had similar experiences. Um, some of the deterioration involves a uh, feeling of a presence watching people all the time, nightmares, dark shadows in the house, the old hag syndrome, which is a crushing weight on the chest. And in each and case, the entity is identifying itself as Zozo? Yes, it does. And even if people have never heard of the term Zozo, um, it's spelled when, when people ask, uh, you know, who are we talking to, the entity will spell out Zozo. And uh, for um, many people, it's, it's like, well, who's Zozo? We never heard of Zozo. And yet this entity exhibits the same characteristics uh, with everyone. And, and, and this, also, Darren, after having this horrific experience, had to undergo exorcism, obviously emotionally, psychologically damaged by this whole event, then when he gets better, he got, decides to dive right back into the pool or whatever, you choose your metaphor, get back up on that horse. I mean, wow, I, I think if that had happened to me, I, um, like 
the, the Apostle John, I would have exiled myself to Patmos. <laughs> well, I'm kind of with you, Richard. Uh, I wouldn't want to uh, dive back into something that had nearly wrecked my life. But uh, to his credit, his research really exposed a very wide phenomenon going on. And so that's what we document in the book, is that uh, this isn't just a few people having bizarre experiences. Uh, I think we do have to allow uh, for some cases of, you know, like teenagers hearing about it, and so they're, they're kind of predisposed to uh, wanting um, Zozo to appear, and that there may be some... Uh, subconscious things going on there but we have so many cases uh, he's collected hundreds over the years uh, of people who were really blindsided by uh, this negative presence and it, it's frequently started with just people casually using spirit boards and was the name of this entity Zozo was it well known widespread before for example you wrote uh, Ouija Gone Wild uh, Zozo uh, started coming into prominence in the 1980s. Uh, a very few cases, but it was not until uh, Darren started a blog in 2008 and he was publishing his findings and his experiences. That's when the term Zozo really started to take off. And uh, the research that Rick Fisher and I did for Ouija Gone Wild, we did that in uh, 2009, 10. 11 uh, uh, for that. And uh, so Zozo was, uh, I would say, a budding phenomenon at that point. So the name was out there. So it is possible you had some people who, who, who read the name online, on a blog, etc., in your book, and then decided, you know, to say, to claim, um, you know, that they, they were approached by this entity. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's also possible that there are people who, who never saw the name mentioned on a on a on a blog or read your book and and uh, they were in fact or genuinely believed they were contacted by this entity so it's kind of, how do you separate the the wheat from the chaff i guess the chaff how do you you know um, decide which case is, is legitimate and which which case is just someone you know seeking some i don't know some publicity well with without um, being able to do in depth interviews, uh, which are not always possible because sometimes people will submit their stories and then you try and follow up and uh, they take a powder, you know, that's all they want to say. They um, don't want to be contacted again. So in most cases, we don't have the ability to do lengthy follow-ups. And and, um, in some cases where the stories were submitted by uh, people who admitted that they, for example, were uh, teenagers, young teenager, teenagers or adolescents. And the way they describe uh, the encounters, um, it seems that they might have been predisposed to wanting a scary experience and it would be cool, you know, to contact Zozo. Right, right. Um, Nothing cool. Nothing cool about Zozo, from what I can tell. (laughs) How were you first contacted by Zozo? The very first encounter I had was uh, on a Ouija board, and it was during the time that Rick and I were doing uh, research for Ouija Gone Wild. And at that point in my paranormal investigations, I was experimenting with a lot of different tools. I uh, had uh, started using the ghost box, the radio sweep boxes in around 2006. 
And uh, I was experimenting with dowsing rods and automatic writing, flashlight divination, just various techniques to see what sort of communication uh, could come through. All right, let me just jump in, Rosemary, because we've got to uh, uh, pay some bills here. What a horrible radio cliche that is. And I just used it, slapping my wrist right now, off mic. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com is her website, and uh, we'll continue to talk about this malevolent entity, Zozo, and uh, we'll also get to our Paranormal News Roundup. Have some uh, great stories for you, including the discovery of a 19th century Bigfoot journal and uh, UFOs, food for thought, or are we food for ETs? And Mark Twain's seance novel, uh, we'll uh, get to that as well. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarah. All right, welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, our paranormal investigator, hard at work on another book. No surprise there. Uh, her website, visionaryliving.com, and you can find a complete list well, I'm not sure if it's how complete it is because there's about 60 some books. Uh, but if you go to the, she's got a, like essentially a bookstore on the website, visionaryliving.com, and then you can peruse all the titles. And I've got a lot of them sitting on my shelf. Uh, major, major encyclopedic work, some of them. So it's worth checking out, visionaryliving.com. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Um, earlier, I was mentioning the uh, the big event coming May 21st, Saturday, May 21st. Uh, Conspiracy Culture presenting, and I'll be hosting and um, emceeing, I guess, um, David uh, Polites, the author of Missing 411, and it's a whole series of books. There's five of them. The latest concentrates on, I guess, the national parks here in Canada, but he's coming May 21st, and uh, we were giving away some tickets, uh, and I have this demonic screeching, horrible sound. I um, sort of likened it to the uh, the demons from Lord of the Rings. And uh, a little later, we're going to open up the lines and take calls with Rosemary. And uh, if you can identify what that sound is, I will, if you're on the air with me, then I'll, um, I'll get you a pair of tickets. Can we hear that again, Ian? Let's hear that. There you go. Now, uh, it's not Sasquatch. Someone guessed that earlier. I'll tell you that right now. It's not Sasquatch. All right. Uh, and it's um, it's not the lead singer from Guns N' Roses after an all-nighter. Uh, that's You can take that one to the bank, too. All right. Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, is back with us. And we were talking about... Um, well, well, we'll finish up talking about um, uh, Zozo here, this entity... A uh, malevolent entity, and you encountered it. Uh, it came through to you on a, on a Ouija board. Did it make any? I mean, was it was it threatening? Was it oppressing or suppress or um, possessing you? Uh, I've never been attached by anything like that, but it, I would characterize it as annoying. And um, uh, first, it when when it announces itself, it will often. Uh, move the planchette in figure eights, and then it starts to go back and forth between the Z and the O. Now, it has some alter egos, too, and Zaza is one of them, so it will alternate between the Z and the A. And that's what it does at first for many people. Uh, and at first, people think that it's just doing something nonsensical, just doing Z-O, Z-O, Z-O. 
but that has become a hallmark characteristic. Uh, the communications with this entity are usually, um, it's, it's quite frequently crude, uh, almost abusive. Um, sometimes it will start out nice and friendly and then progressively get meaner and nastier. Um, but um, I've never gotten anything productive out of it, and uh, it either uh, refuses to answer questions or it will uh, answer with some, um, you know, expletive or swear word or something like kill, uh, and uh, I just tell it to go away, and if it doesn't go away, then I just stop the board session. But what happens with a lot of people, especially younger people who are very excited by, you know, the thrill-seeking of this, is that um, they don't stop. Uh, they allow the communication to go on and on, and uh, they they become uh, sort of invested in it, um, as though they're onto some sort of uh, secret uh, connection, and uh, they don't realize how dangerous it can get um, because you, it's it's like a riptide. You can get pulled under. By, uh, by this sort of thing, regardless of how negative spirits communicate with you. And then attachment can occur. Now, so if, if, if someone is, is uh, experimenting with a talking board or a Ouija board and they get that planchet moving around in a figure eight and it starts to spell out Zozo, Z-O, Z-O, uh, what, how, what should they do immediately? Close the board? How do they do that? Uh, well, um, if, if it's me... Uh, then I I would ask the question, uh, is this Zozo? And uh, sometimes the planchette will just keep going Z-O-Z-O or it may swing to yes. And um, I might ask, like, uh, you know, uh, what is your purpose? Uh, and uh, see if it will answer. But usually when Zozo shows up, the, the session is... Uh, pretty well trashed, I think. Uh, you're not going to get anything significant out of it. It pushes aside anything else that uh, that might be able to come through. Who do you and think? So who or what? What I do is I just end it. You end um, it. Okay. Who or what is Zozo? Who or what is Zozo? Is it a? Is it a? Is it the the soul of uh, a, a, you know a, a human? Is it a demon? I believe it to be non-human, and we explore uh, a number of possibilities in the book. Uh, it certainly acts in demonic ways that are characteristic of, of that kind of negative entity. Uh, there are also jinn characteristics to it as well, and uh, I think that those are the two most likely explanations, but we've even found connections to extraterrestrials, to ancient gods, um, to thought forms, uh, there's, uh, we certainly can entertain the possibility that Zozo might be the product of, um, you know, collective uh, human thought, you know, negative kind of thought. And it may be a mixture of all of those things, but uh, clearly it falls into what we would call a demonic category. That is an, a negative entity that wants to pester, harass, and even damage people. All right. So uh, everyone out there who... Occasionally likes to, uh, to toy around with Ouija boards and talking boards. Uh, forewarned, forearmed. If you get um, a communication from an entity identifying itself as Zozo, close the board, run, uh, cease and desist immediately. All right, uh, I want to talk to you about 
This is a remarkable story. You know, obviously, Fort McMurray, Alberta, in the news these days because of this hor- horrible uh, fire, um, tens of thousands of people displaced, just just horrible. But it sounds like finally, because of some good weather, they're getting it under control. But from Fort McMurray, Alberta, now we go to Jasper, Alberta, and we dial it back to about 1811. A gentleman by the name of David Thompson, uh, keeping... Uh, what is being described as a 19th century Bigfoot journal. What can you tell me about this, Rosemary? Uh, there are a lot of interesting Bigfoot accounts from the 19th century, and thank goodness we have them. And This fellow was uh, out in the Rocky Mountains uh, near Jasper, and he finds these enormous footprints. Uh, and uh, they're very odd. They don't fall into any category. And first, he thinks it's like a grizzly bear. His, he, he called him grizzled bear. I think that was a term they used then. But it, it, it still didn't look like a bear. And um, the Native American contacts that he had uh, told him that, that this was a still-living mammoth, and he didn't believe them. Um, but... Um, uh, you know, he, he even finds them again and uh, questions some of the Native Americans about them, and they insist that, no, this isn't a bear. Uh, this is a huge, giant mammoth creature, and uh, that they had lots of stories of, of these uh, creatures that lived in the wild. And uh, he said that uh, one of the prints that he found uh, was 14 inches in length, and it was impressed very deeply into the snow, at, at least a good six inches, uh, and uh, that it had four big toes and um, a short claw on each and it, kind of a ball to the foot, and it just didn't look like a, a barefoot. So it was a big mystery to him. Uh, but, you know, the Native Americans in Canada and throughout America, especially in the Pacific Northwest, uh, have legends going way, way back that, these creatures exist, uh, and th- that they've always been in the wild, and they were very feared. Hmm. And his account wasn't the only uh, one of this creature. There was um, an artist uh, back in the 1840s named Paul Kane. Didn't he see something similar? And that was down in Washington State. Now, I used to live in Vancouver, Washington, and that area, it's around, um, not very far from Mount St. Helens, and then further east along the Columbia River uh, into Clackamas County and uh, Skamania County over by Mount Adams. These are all areas where the tradition of Bigfoot goes back a long time in Native American lore, and sightings have been very frequent. And so this artist, um, said that uh, he was near Vancouver, Washington, and he was, um, what his interest was, he, he was going to sketch Mount St. Helens. And um, he found out about uh, this giant species um, from the Native Americans who said they were cannibals. And that's kind of a disturbing idea that um, uh, these creatures that might be Bigfoot might have a taste for uh, for human beings. And uh, one of the terms that the uh, Native Americans use in that area is skookum, uh, which has become in modern usage almost a, an alternate for Sasquatch. But the term actually means powerful. And uh, so something, any, almost anything could be skookum if it's powerful. But they especially applied that term to these uh, giant uh, creatures, which the artist, interestingly enough, 
also translated as evil genie, Ooh. or that would be like a jinn-like creature. Right, right. Of course, the jinn are known to shapeshift into different forms as well. Yes, because this does not fit the the mo. Uh, well, there are accounts of Bigfoot attacking people or, or kidnapping uh, uh, people, but generally the sort of the profile is shy, elusive, peaceful, kind of an herbivore. Um, so now we're hearing of another species, maybe a sort of a subspecies of uh, a giant hairy ape that actually eats people. Um, hey, maybe that's one of the, um, the culprits in... Um, Behind this whole, you know, uh, David uh, uh, Politas and the, the, the missing 411 in the national parks. We have to consider it. And in fact, for years, I have wondered uh, whether or not other uh, entities who visit us from uh, other dimensions or off world, uh, if they have, have a taste for human beings and that that might account for some of our missing cases. Well, turns out there's something else that may have a taste for human beings, and uh, that involves potentially extraterrestrials. Uh, this is um, an interesting story that goes back to, uh, I guess, the Vietnam era. In, I think it was in neighboring Cambodia in 1972, and there was an elite, highly trained U.S. Army special ops uh, um, operation going on there. And they stumbled upon something rather horrific in the uh, the jungles of Cambodia. This is a very disturbing story, uh, although here again I've often wondered about uh, extraterrestrials, uh, if some of them might be interested in us as a food source. And this story was reported to Leo Stringfield, who's passed on now, uh, but for many years he was one of the most respected researchers in the field. And according to this story, uh, there was a group of, um, this was relayed to him by an American soldier, and they were out on uh, a mission uh, to engage with the, uh, the North Vietnamese. And they came across this craft uh, that had landed. It was on, an, uh, on little feet, uh, like a tripod. And it was so bright, uh, silver craft, that it reflected uh, light with the intensity of a mirror, and there were these beings uh, outside the craft who were clearly non-human. They had black eyes that kind of wrapped around to the side of their uh, faces, and they had hairless heads, sort of like what we would describe as grays, and they were collecting corpses and body parts and putting them in these big bins, and uh, uh, a firefight ensued. Uh, and uh, uh, some mysterious ray weapon shot out from the craft. Uh, one of the U.S. soldiers was killed, and uh, the aliens uh, scurried aboard the craft and, and escaped. But the feeling that this fellow had who was relaying the story was that they were collecting human corpses as food. Um, now, in, in reading the details of the account, um, there's... Nothing to, I mean, how do we know? You know, they might have been collecting uh, the body parts and the corpses uh, as specimens to study. You know, we don't really know for sure that they were collecting uh, people uh, as food. But, um, you know, we've, we've had these theories around for a long time that the aliens might be interested in eating us. And uh, here again, this could account for some missing cases. And uh, the the source uh, supposedly 
was a, um, and that Stringfield source was a high-ranking military officer. However, he's not named. Um, so, yeah, that's a rather disturbing account and an entirely different view of our uh, our galactic neighbors. We are on the menu, apparently. All right, Rosemary Ellen Giley stays with us. Uh, another chance to win a pair of tickets to Missing 411 on March 21st with David uh, Polites, a conspiracy culture presentation I'll be hosting. And uh, we'll also talk about the Forrest J. Ackerman investigation and disappearing and reappearing objects. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, uh, we will get back to Rosemary Ellen Guiley in just a second. I uh, I just wanted to acknowledge a um, a, uh, a lengthy handwritten letter that I received, and um, I haven't had time to to read all of it. It's there's a lot of pages here, but I just wanted to to let the person who wrote it know I've received it. I don't want to give out their identity without their permission. Let's just say, um, well, it's from Robert. And it's Lubbock, Texas, and um, he will know who he is. Robert in Lubbock, Texas, I have received your lengthy letter, and uh, this is, uh, well, this will go into a, an, a, an expanding file that has to do with targeted individuals, Robert. And I get these almost on a weekly basis. Um, a lot of handwritten uh, letters and a lot of emails from people who genuinely believe that they are targeted individuals. This is something we've talked about on the program a lot. So Robert and Lubbock, I did get your letter, rest assured, and I will read it. Thank you for that. All right, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, we, um, we're going to finish up with our paranormal news roundup, and then we're going to talk about the Forey Ackerman um, uh, case, which she's been involved with. And But this one, uh, let's just talk for a few minutes about uh, Mark Twain. And uh, speaking of uh, Ouija boards, uh, a story about how Mark Twain's ghost almost set off the copyright battle of the century. This is a phenomenal story, Rosemary. It certainly is, and it's uh, one of the most significant uh, Ouija board stories to come out of the 20th century. Now, the Ouija board came out officially in the late 19th century. It was around 1892, and it was marketed as a game, but people immediately started using it for a lot of different purposes, including receiving dictation from spirits. And so here in 1917, a woman named Emily Grant Hutchings started using the Ouija board and felt, or so she claimed, that she got in touch with the late Mark Twain, who had died about seven years earlier. And she took dictation and allowed his supposed spirit to write another book, which was published as a novel called Jap Heron. It was not a very good book. Uh, It was panned by the critics. Some of them said, if this is the best that Mark Twain can do from the other side, he should stay on the other side. But the interesting thing about this story is what it set off. And this is something, uh, Richard, that I am convinced is going to be an issue on into the future when we have reliable communication with people on the other side. Because what happened was the publisher of Mark Twain's books, which was Harper Brothers at the time, which later became Harper Collins, they claimed that they owned the right to publish all of Mark Twain's books. And so if he had dictated something from the other side, they were entitled to publish that book. And there was a big copyright battle over this as to who owned the copyright to this supposed post-mortem novel. 
and uh, it never went to court. The publisher of the book vowed that they were going to take it to court and they would win, but they kind of saw how things were stacked against them and that they were probably going to lose or it might not even, you know, might even get thrown out of court. So they withdrew it from publication. Was it even written in his style? I mean, why would anyone even consider that this might have been written by Mark Twain's ghost? It was largely on her say-so, and it really didn't sound much like Mark Twain. In fact, it's available online, and if people want to check it out, you can probably find a PDF copy available somewhere online. But it really doesn't sound a lot like Mark Twain, and so I can see how his publisher might have been upset. But the fight really was over money. It was over who owns the copyright to this book. And, and if Mark Twain supposedly uh, was alive on the other side and still writing, then his earthly publisher said they still had the rights to that. Well, I spoke with a gentleman years ago who claimed that he was channeling John Lennon and Lennon was composing new material on the other side. So I guess, yeah, then, who owns that? Is it EMI or, uh, which I guess that's, is that Sony now, Sony Music? But this whole idea has even spawned an article in a law review by uh, some legal scholar about this whole issue. Ghostwriters, spiritualists, copyright infringement, and the right of publicity. That's right. And in fact, you know, here in the States, the copyright law is now uh, author's lifetime plus 70 years. Well, in that 70-year period, if somebody communicates from the other side, does that mean that people on this side still own the intellectual property rights to that? If we have increasing communication with the other side, uh, all kinds of murky uh, legal battles could uh, ensue, like uh, for patents, for trademarks, for inventions, um, and let alone literary properties. It gives a whole new meaning to the term ghostwriter. Uh, this it would literally does. be a ghostwriter. All right, another ghost, Forey Ackerman. Uh, we'll uh, discuss your involvement in this amazing uh, a case that provides some pretty compelling evidence for after-death communication. Forey Ackerman, and he may have actually even reached out and, I don't know, touched the mighty Aphrodite, at least her cell phone. We'll talk about that again as well. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. VisionaryLiving.com is her website. Uh, the author of more than 60 books, may, many of them major encyclopedic works uh, dealing with the paranormal. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about your involvement in the Forrest J. Ackerman uh, investigation. Uh, Paul Davids, Gary Schwartz uh, have detailed the evidence in this book, uh, also in a uh, in a uh, documentary called The After Death Project, or the, uh, I think it's called The After Death Project, and or The Afterlife Project, uh, and uh, this new book, uh, An Atheist in Heaven. Some pretty compelling evidence there that uh, the late Forrest J. Ackerman, science fiction writer, literary agent, editor of famous monsters from Filmland, uh, pretty compelling evidence he was reaching out to Paul Davids from the grave. Uh, how did you get involved in the investigation, Rosemary? Well, Paul is a friend of mine. I've known him for um, oh, quite a few years now. 
And uh, we were chatting at uh, a UFO conference, in fact, uh, a little over a year ago, uh, talking about his uh, research on this. And he invited me to participate in this investigation. That's how it came about. And, uh, of course, I was uh, very excited to do that. It sounded intriguing. Uh, I was familiar with what had been going on in the case, uh, and uh, I definitely wanted to see what might happen. And so this took place over several days in late May last year at uh, Forrest Ackerman's uh, mansion in uh, Los Angeles. Up in the Hollywood Hills there. Uh, up in the Hollywood Hills, and quite an impressive place. It's uh, now owned uh, privately, and uh, the fellow who owns it often rents it out to people. And he told us that um, many people talked about uh, being haunted in the home, uh, some to the point where it was uncomfortable for them to continue staying there, and that he himself had had uh, unusual experiences in the house. So uh, Paul and Gary assembled a group of people. There were two mediums involved. There was uh, a family that um, they were researchers in the paranormal, and uh, they were taking kind of a skeptical approach. They brought in a, a lot of equipment uh, to set up for uh, cameras and uh, audio monitoring and things like that. Uh, and my husband and myself, we were there, uh, we were all staying overnight in the house, and then we had uh, a number of other people who were involved in this long-term case uh, also coming by to participate in uh, some of the activities. And one of the first things that uh, Paul asked us to do when we arrived at the house uh, was to um, make an immediate walkthrough and record our impressions. And throughout the stay, I was uh, recording a lot of my impressions about what I was experiencing in uh, in the house. And uh, when we uh, got together at various times to compare our notes, um, I, uh, from my perspective, I had uh, tuned in to a lot of the hot spots in the house, places where people saw shadow figures quite frequently, places where... Uh, people had had uh, encounters with apparitions and uh, and things like that. Um, we had a filmmaker come in, uh, Ron James, who's very well known in the paranormal and UFO communities for his documentaries. He came and he did a lot of filming one evening. Um, we uh, tried to uh, get um, some physical manifestation going, like uh, to have objects move in front of us. Uh, we weren't able to document that, but we had uh, other unusual things uh, happen. And uh, one of the mediums, for example, had uh, visits on two nights from dark shadow figures. Uh, and um, they had the, like a red light, like a red uh, ra laser light with them. And at first she thought they were uh, part of the film crew. But... Uh, this happened very late at night after everyone was done filming and we had packed up the equipment and uh, exited the floor that she was staying on. Nobody was there on, on that floor. And uh, the figures that she described were very characteristic of shadow people, uh, dark figures that invade the bedroom, and uh, there are red lights associated with them. Sometimes they have red eyes. Uh, and... She, she was a little shook up about it, uh, the, the fact that 
she really thought it was people coming into her room, and she couldn't see them because they were just in silhouette. Hmm. Um, Did Forey uh, make his... a shook up that they might not have been, you know, of earthly origin. I guess. Did Forey Ackerman make his presence known to you or anyone else? There was a seance at the end where he was invited to be present, and the mediums felt that he, he was present. And one of the participants, it was uh, the husband of the family of uh, filmmakers, uh, evidence takers, and the, the who were more on the skeptical side, experienced a very violent vibrating of the sofa that he was sitting on. And that was one of the most remarkable uh, physical demonstrations of evidence that took place during the investigation. There was another time, uh, the very first night we were there, we had kind of a mini seance uh, upstairs in the master bedroom that used to belong to Ackerman, where Paul invited him to make his presence known. And we did not have any demonstrable phenomena on that particular night. This has been my experience in investigations, is that sometimes, especially when you have several days and nights to work through rather than just one night, sometimes you don't get much at first, and it's later, or it seems when energy builds and you start tuning into the environment that then things start happening. And I think that was the case with the seance, that by that point a lot of energy had been uh, built up. We participate, we the living participate in, in these investigations too, and I think the living often make make it possible for phenomena to manifest. Well, I was telling the story earlier, Rosemary, the night after I, uh, last week, I did that show with Paul Davids, uh, sorry, the next morning, the Monday morning, uh, my uh, my wife, the mighty Aphrodite, called me in a panic. She was running some errands, came out of a bank, suddenly realized she didn't have her cell phone, searched the car, turned her pockets inside out, realized, okay, I must have left it in the bank, went back to the bank, it wasn't there, got in the car, and I'm trying to remember now how it went, but I think she then reached into her pocket for the car key, and there was the cell phone. And again, she didn't, uh, and, and it's interesting because in the book, An Atheist in Heaven, one of the co-authors who wrote two chapters, I think, he's a PhD, uh, John Allison, I think, uh, who was, you know, he's a, he's a chemist, I think. And right. he, he got involved in the investigation, and then he started to have some paranormal activity in his apartment while investigating the case, which involved um, cell phones appearing, disappearing, being thrown around. Uh, and then this happened to the mighty Aphrodite. She called me on the phone. She was in a bit of a panic because she just really was, you know, totally blown away by what had happened to her. And again, did not hear my conversation with Paul Davids. I said, did you hear the show last night? She said, no, I fell asleep. So I'm wondering if that was Forey Ackerman striking again. Well, it might have been because Paul documents very thoroughly in An Atheist in Heaven that just about anybody who became involved in this case, even in peripheral ways, started having phenomena. And it would be things like a ports, you know, objects that went missing and then were found. Um, clocks uh, that had, hadn't been on in years, uh, that even had malfunctioned, suddenly working again, strange things happening on computers, just all kinds of synchronicities that get very hard to explain away. Well, I had something uh, happen to me on the, on the last day. Uh, Joe and I had to leave. Uh, I was speaking at Contact in the Desert, and uh, I had to leave before the final seance. And 
um, I get all the way out to um, uh, Joshua Tree, which was, um, oh, about a good 90 miles from L.A., and I discovered that my laser pointer, and lasers again, my mm. laser pointer uh, for my laptop was missing. It was not in my uh, computer case. And I thought, oh, my gosh, it must have fallen out. I, I really hadn't used my computer much during the whole time we were there. But um, uh, I thought maybe it fell out. And I called Paul. I asked him to search the bedroom that we had stayed in, a look under the bed, the floor, the closet, because uh, it surely must be there somewhere in the house. And it didn't turn up. Um, they could not find it. And then, uh, so I was concerned about, well, what am I going to use for a pointer? I'll have to borrow one from someone when I give my presentations. And then, lo and behold, there it shows up in my computer case. Now, I had taken my entire computer case apart. I'd looked mm -hmm. at everything. And when it reappeared, it was in a side pocket that I never use for the uh, laser pointer because I felt that that side pocket was too exposed. Uh, you know, for right, right, and there it was. There it was. That's an apport. That's an apport. Uh, listen, I, I want to grab a quick call here uh, because uh, Claude has been uh, holding on uh, for a while. He's in Port Perry. Claude, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Hey, Richard. Hi. Now, you wanted to. Uh, we were playing a sound uh, earlier for a chance to win tickets to uh, uh, David Palaita's uh, uh, appearance, uh, May twenty-first, uh, missing four one one Canada. Let's let's play it one more time. Okay. What do you think that sound is, Claude? I think it is someone or something opening up uh, a rusty gate in the cemetery. <laughs> Good guess. It's not. I'll tell you what it is. That is a male elk. And this is a sound. There's an article published in National Geographic. Elk, during the rutting season, the males make this sound. They call it a bugle. Uh, and I, it does. It sounds like a, uh, one of the demons from Lord of the Rings. Uh, however, Claude, I appreciate you calling in. I'm going to put you on hold. I'm going to set you up with a pair of tickets uh, for the David uh, Polites event, May 21st, Conspiracy Culture Presents. I'll be hosting at the U of T, and um, you'll get a contact from Patrick at Conspiracy Culture on how to pick up your tickets. All right, Claude, hold Thank on. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. All right. So, Rosemary, I'll have to keep a... A close eye on uh, you know things around the house and see if there's any more appearing, disappearing objects. And um, perhaps Foy Ackerman has worked his way into our lives as well because we were involved, albeit on the periphery of this uh, in f this fascinating case of after-death communication. Uh, Rosemary, what's up next for you? The next big event that I have is Hexfest in New Orleans. That's the first week in June. I'll be uh, talking about psychic protection and conducting a group past life regression. And then I have Haunted America, third weekend in June in uh, Alton, Illinois. Uh, very big event every year. I'll be giving a presentation on the gin. Excellent. Well, always a pleasure. And in the meantime, we direct people to the website visionaryliving.com. Thanks, Rosemary. All the best. Thank you. And same to you, Richard. All right. We'll talk next month. Uh, my thanks uh, to uh, Ian Robertson, Twisting the Knobs and the Dials, to Albert Vinzel, of course, Jonathan Franz, uh, our uh, capable young intern, John Franz. Thank you for all you do. Back next week with a brand new program. Uh, Carl Gallops will be here with some more prophecy, and we'll get around probably talking about uh, the Trump, Donald Trump. What a phenomenon that is. Or he is, I should say. 
All right. Some talking about malevolent entities? No, I didn't say that. I kind of like Donald. Yikes. What's wrong with me? <laughs> All right. Uh, in the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Loan is a 15-year fixed-rate loan with a one-zero lender paid by a reduced payment valid only during the first 12 months. The monthly payment during the first 12 months of your loan is based on a rate that is 1% lower than your interest rate for this loan program. Not all applicants will qualify rates and terms subject to change. NMLS 6606 Equal Housing Lender. Call 888-369-6455 for licensing information. Introducing a 15-year fixed-rate loan with a fixed payment rate in year one at only 1.99%. I'm Rick Arviello, CEO of New American Funding, and I'm proud to announce a 15-year fixed-rate mortgage at only 2.99% interest rate, 2.91 APR, with the first full year's payment at only 1.99% fixed payment rate. Pay off your loan in 15 years and save tens of thousands of dollars in unnecessary mortgage payments. 1.99% fixed payment rate in year one and 2.99% fixed for the remaining term, 2.91% APR for a purchase or refinance. Call New American Funding today at 800-963-4933. That's 800-963-4933. 800-963-4933. Or visit newamericanfunding.com today.